Well, join me over in 2 Peter 3. It will be an 8 through 10 today. 8 through 10. We journey on toward the end of, of 2 Peter. Probably two more after this. And then, praise God, His Word is great no matter where we go. So, that's wonderful. Uh, let's pray. Uh, our Father, at, at times we are confused and, and we... Uh, join with uh, our brother and the prophet Habakkuk in prayers of frustration. Uh, oh Lord, how long shall we cry for help? You will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. And Why do you make us see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before us. Strife and contention arise. And even sometimes we go beyond the holy uh, laments of, of the prophets, and we confess to being caught up in the doubt of the scoffer of this passage and wondering for ourselves, where is the promise of his coming? So our God, we pray that you would teach us of your timelessness this morning and teach us of your patience and your deliberate care for each and every name that you have written in your book of life. And teach us to trust in you. Uh, in all things, and, and let us not be swept away by doubt or impatience or laziness as we await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we plead. Amen. Let's stand and read God's Word, Second Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Amen. You be seated. <coughs> Last week we saw the scoffer's question, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter made it obvious that this question was founded on faulty premise, uh, and an intentionally ignorant outlook on redemptive history. God had, in fact, judged humanity in, in the flood. And obviously, He's going to do it again. God will fulfill His promises. However, I think even the, the most sincere mind can sympathize at times with that, that question. Well, where is the promise of His coming? How does Peter answer this question? That, you know, what is God doing here? Why is it taking so long? And this is what we're... Looking at this morning is how Peter responds to this question. He had kind of negatively undercut their arguments. Now he'll positively present his. And he'll do so in three ways. First, to, he's going to remind us of the truth about God. Namely, of his timelessness, his eternality. Second, he will explain again from God's nature uh, the purpose for the delay. And namely, his waiting is because of his patience. 
And third, he will reaffirm his original position that the day of the Lord will come. And it will come unexpectedly, dramatically, and revealing the works of man. I think a few of us were talking last week, I forget exactly who, maybe Michael and Stan and I, about how just how mundane life is. It goes on and on, day after day, and we can be caught up in that real, that question of the false teachers and the scoffers. Is well, This just really does seem to just be going on and on, in my own experience. So, so where is Christ? We will pray, and I, I speak of myself here, we'll, we'll pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pray that prayer. But I wonder how much we really believe that he could come quickly. Or, or moreover, do we really live as though he could? Peter's aim, and thus my aim this morning, is to bolster our confidence in the coming day of the Lord and ultimately to bolster our confidence in the Lord himself. And the result of that should be completely changing the way we live our lives, uh, which we'll look at really more next week, and also that our confidence in God himself as God will be strengthened. Even when life seems mundane or worse when we face persecution. So Peter begins to strengthen our confidence by pointing us to the timelessness of God, to the eternity of God. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is probably an allusion, an intentional allusion to Psalm 90. In Psalm 94 through 6, the psalmist uh, Moses, right? That's the yes. psalm of Moses. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. God is eternal. God doesn't interact with time the way you and I interact with time. As Augustine says, in the eternal, nothing passes away, but the whole is simultaneously present. I was telling Michael this week, I I read Augustine, his section on time in the Confessions, and man, that made my brain all rubbery and stretched out. (laughs) Boy. But I recommend it. It's really good. But... Time is a creation of a timeless creator. What is a thousand years or what is a day to one who has no beginning or no end? I mean, consider a thousand years relative to a day on a scale of, say, 10 billion years. The the, the dot on the timeline would be indistinguishable. Now, Now remove the ends of the timeline and put arrows and put infinity signs of 10 billion years and a nanosecond, they don't mean anything. Because God is timeless. He has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. One year is as a thousand, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, of course, this is uh, illustrative language, but it's kind of fun, I think, to take it 
really literally and kind of do the numbers, it, it really highlights kind of the absurdity of trying to pin God down with time. If you take 2,000 years as 2,000 days, that would be five and a half years. Or if you flip it around, 2,000 years is 300 or 730,000 days. So if one day is 1,000 years, then 2,000 years is 730 million years. So those numbers highlight for me just how inconsequential 2,000 years is, roughly the time from when Jesus left us to now, how, how little that is in God's view, and how little time affects God's actions. I mean, imagine if Jesus had come back five and a half years after he left. Of course, we would never know the tribulation and trial of the world, but we, nor would we know his forgiveness and mercy. Or say he did come back 730 million years from now. This 2,000-year period is just, the church is an infant, barely an infant. All that is kind of goofy, but it's to say time is confusing and difficult to pin down, especially when we're talking about God. We're talking about an eternal God who exists outside of time while we're confined to time. And, and when we do that, we are really reaching outside our sphere of our own capacity. Great book, uh, All That Is In God by James Dazal. Michael recommended it to me. Uh, on the simplicity of God, he recognizes this difficulty with the eternality of God. It's a great quote. He says, God is the King eternal, the Alpha and the Omega, the one whose years have no end, who is from everlasting to everlasting. He exists exalted above all time as Creator and Lord and does not have his life or existence computed and measured out to him in increments of succession. Rather, as his simplicity demands, he is perfectly identical with all that is in, in himself. Yet the Lord of time both reveals himself and unfolds his sovereign purpose in time. All our knowledge of him arises from our standpoint with the temporal flow of the created order. We come to know him and speak of him as he reveals himself through his mighty deeds and words one after another in succession. For this reason, we find it impossible to speak of a timeless God without employing time-bound terminology. So this is outside of our sphere of understanding, God and his eternality, and that is as it should be, because he is God. The point of application for us is, is this, that Newspaper exegesis will not get us very far in trying to predict when Jesus will come back, or when God will fulfill his promises. And that newspaper exegesis is exactly what the scoffers were doing. Look, look around, look at history, look at what's going on right now. Where is the promise of his coming? Rather, we should leave the, the timing of events to the one who created time itself. And waiting on the Lord is a bit like walking a knife-edge ridge. You can fall off one side or the other pretty easily. On the one side, you can stray into impatience. That where is the promise of His coming? I'm tired of waiting for Jesus to come back. And on the other side, you can stray or fall into sloth and doubt. But He's not coming back. I'm fine. Like the, the uh, person in the parable, the manager in the parable who started to beat the other slaves. 
Both of these sides are a symptom of doubt. I don't really believe that Jesus is coming back soon. God's desire is not that we know the date of the arrival of Jesus, nor that we really understand God's sense of timing. The secret things belong to the Lord, and that's a good thing. We need to rest in that. Ultimately, we need to be patiently and passionately laboring in the work he's given us to do as we wait on him. And we'll talk more about what it means, the Bible talks this way in in next week's passage, to hasten the day of the Lord. Uh, We'll talk more about that next week. But the, the point here for this week is that we need to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And I can assure you that those two messages are, are compatible. Peter, having explained the timelessness of God, now goes on to give us a specific reason why God, Jesus hasn't come back yet. And namely, that is the patience of God. Verse 9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The the way I've thought of to phrase this is that, that God is not slow. He's intentional. In the craft of a fine woodworking, you have to be a very deliberate person when you are building things, fine furniture. Things always take four times longer than you expect. And every step has to be planned out. And there has to be a careful order of operations. And one mistake can can result in a blemish. But that is intentional slowness. See, speed is a relative thing. Framing, on the other hand, is not fine furniture speed. And I found that out as a fine furniture builder going to, to, to frame things is that I'm a little bit slow. But it's not a matter of superiority of one speed over another. It's a matter of purpose. It's a matter of intent. What are you trying to accomplish? God does not make mistakes. And he can do whatever he wants at whatever speed he wants. He possesses all knowledge and infinite skill. But that really is the point, isn't it? He can do what he wants. Therefore, he is doing what he wants. In other words, God is executing a perfect plan, and he's doing so deliberately. He's not slow, he's deliberate. He is faithful, and he will always deliver on his promises. So he is patient with intention. Romans 2.4 asks, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That is human nature, isn't it, to, to presume upon God's kindness. It's like young children. They, they know just how far to push their parents before they break. God's kindness is meant to give us time to repent, to turn from our sins and to believe upon Him. Calvin says, For our minds are always uneasy with desire, and a doubt often creeps in. Why does he not come sooner? But when we hear that the Lord in de- 
delaying shows a concern for our salvation and that he defers the time because he has care for us, there is no reason why we should any longer complain of tardiness. He is tardy who allows an occasion to pass by through slothfulness. There is nothing like this in God, who in the best manner regulates time to promote our salvation. So God is slow because he's merciful and he's wanting us to repent. And the question arises at this point, if God is patient so that all will repent, and because he's willing and desirous that all should repent, why do not all repent? We have to square this verse with, say, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I'll leave you to study that on your own. No, not really. <laughs> I have two answers. First answer is exegetical. We need to, to follow the pronouns here. So if we go back to verse 4, chapter 3, he's speaking of the uh, scoffers and, and the pronoun there. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. And he, he goes on there, and he continues on into our passage. And he says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. <laughs> There's a switch in pronouns. He was talking about they. Now he's talking about you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So just basic grammar says that the all and the any there are you. We need not go farther than that. There's no reason to insert anything besides what the grammar tells us. So we can read it. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. So just as an example, uh, say one of these people was, was saved in the year 49. What if Jesus had come back in the year 48? That They would not have reached repentance. Or perhaps even now, some of these people are caught up in the false teacher's heresy Maybe Peter's letter here is a means of saving grace for those people. But what if Jesus had already come back? Those people, God's people, would not be saved. Because this all comes back around to the patience and intentionality and timelessness of God. And 1,000 years being as a day and a day as a 1,000 years, this is really a reality in every generation. We can each say for ourselves, but for the patience and intentionality of the Lord, I would not be numbered among the saints. The second answer here is more theological. And if we're we're compelled to apply this this verse more broadly, which I'm skeptical of doing in the first place, but if, if we must, we would have to explain in what sense God wills the repentance of all. Is this his will of decree, which cannot be thwarted? If so... All will be saved. Or is it his perceptive will? 
namely that will which he, he gives his laws to humanity by. Uh, and certainly it is because God commands all men everywhere to repent. Or perhaps it's his will of disposition. Certainly God does desire the repentance of all men or he wouldn't command all men repent. Calvin again here says, For God there stretches forth his hand without difference to all, but lays hold of only those to lead them to himself, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. God has issued to the entire world a general call to repent, but he has issued only to the elect his effectual call, whereby we are regenerated unto newness of life and given the gift of repentance. Acts 18, 9, and 10 uh, is a great example of this. Paul is journeying, and I think, believe the city is Corinth here, and he said, and God says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Yet again here, Peter's purpose is to instill within us a confidence in God. By pointing us to his patience, we're made more aware of the purpose of his slowness, that even we are numbered among the saints, and we are also made aware of God's intentionality, whereby we're moved to to trust God. Not only in the area of the second coming, but really in all of life, God is intentional. I have a friend who I was speaking to this week um, who's struggling with a season of grief and, and difficulty with why God put me in the situation. And I said, you read Habakkuk? He said, no. And I said, the Habakkuk storyline is basically, what gives? <laughs> we're, your, we're your covenant people and we're going to be attacked by Babylon. And they have this dialogue, he and God. And finally he concludes, okay, God is merciful. And he is faithful no matter what. So the question is, do we trust God? Do we have confidence? And that's the word that I think best suits the book of Second Peter, confidence. And are we grateful that he has waited long enough that we could be included among the elect and of the saints? In verses 8 and 9, Peter pointed us first to the nature and character of God, um, his, his timing, his timelessness, and his patience. And now in verse 10, he points us to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, so Peter here essentially reasserts his positive position. The day of the Lord will come. At least any in the church believes that, that God's patience will kind of forestall the judgment into per- perpetuity. He assures us that the day of the Lord is going to come. And that it will come unexpectedly, dramatically, and in revelation of all that mankind has done. So, first, that it's coming unexpectedly, uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
So this isn't something that will be announced on the, the evening news a couple weeks beforehand. Jesus will come back. You know, put it on your calendars. Get your Google calendar and, and put a reminder. I, I think a thief in the night, that image, a thief in the night, or he just says a thief, taken from Jesus, I'm sure, a thief in the night. But a, a thief is kind of, he's intentionally trying to to not, you know, that the owner of the home will not know that they're coming. That's intentional. That's kind of definitional to the craft of thievery. <coughs> and you hear about people being robbed. I've never been robbed. I'm sure some of you have. But you hear most often one of the most common feelings is, is shock. Oh, oh, my, I've been robbed. I've been violated. <laughs> that day when the Lord will come, the day of the Lord, is a veiled day as a thief. Neither Jesus says, neither the angels nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone knows the day. Matthew 24, Jesus tells us, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-3, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So we see here kind of the absurdity of trying to herald camping the, the day of the Lord. To, to figure it out, to get your, all your numerology in order and figure out when God is coming back. What is important for Christians is that He is coming back. And we should, on the one hand, be ready in anticipation of His return at any moment. We, we don't want Him to find us in a state of, of slumber or apathy because uh, he, He's taking forever. On the other hand, we should be patiently working toward uh, the, the long-term stability of the household of God. It could be many, many years, many thousands of years before he comes back. We don't know. And we have to care for the next generations. The church is a generational entity. Imagine if, if Calvin or, or Augustine or Sproul or any of these you know, men and women of, of the faith had just said, well, Jesus is probably coming back in a couple of weeks and... I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna write anything down. I'm not gonna be concerned. They leave us poor people in future generations out in the cold. We have a responsibility both to be ready that he could come back now, or that it could be many years, and we have to care for future generations. So we should plan for the long term, and live and think like he could come tomorrow. Next, the day of the, the Lord will be uh, dramatic day of the Lord. He says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, dissolved. In my mind, with, with the, the word roar kind of goes back to the, the flood. You can imagine the roar of waters. How much greater will be the, the roar of the fire, of the, of the universe on fire? That may be you know, language of imagery as well, but we get the sense of th- this is going to be a cataclysmic judgment. The owner of the universe, by creative right, will toss his creation into the furnace. 
the word translated here in the ESV, heavenly bodies, um, could be also translated elements, which I think is probably better. And essentially, I think he's saying that the, the, the earth and all it contains is going to be burned up. Jesus tells us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The scoffers are people who have downplayed God's judgment. They've essentially, like the Old Testament prophets, said, Peace, peace. But Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. The day of judgment is not a day of peace, but a day of cataclysmic destruction. And we should not be afraid to say so. Though it seems outdated and and strange in our day, we believe in the judgment. This world is a temporary world, a temporary home. And and I wonder, would we spend hours painting? I've seen people where they'll paint, like in condemned buildings, these magnificent pieces of art. I saw one where they were going to paint like a, a university fresh paint, and they, they painted all these beautiful works of art in it, and then they painted over top of it, which is normal wall paint. Would, would we do something like that, or maybe would we go and, and hire a crew and spend hours and money to landscape this section of forest that's slated for uh, a controlled burn in a couple weeks? Well, that's, like, that, that's what it's like when we devote ourselves to worldly pursuits. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or on earth, rather, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul tells us, for the things that are seen are transient, but the, th- the things that are unseen are eternal. So where is our heart? That's the question. Finally, the, the day of the Lord will be a revealing day. He says, And the earth and the works that are done on it <coughs> excuse me, will be exposed. So that, that physical realm or the, that worldly realm would be a better term, which seemed really to be all there was to these scoffers and false teachers and many today, uh, that is being eliminated. And at the end, their works will stand exposed. They will not be able to hide any longer behind sensuality or or frivolity. They they won't be able to stand behind their attractiveness or their appeal anymore. But they'll stand, stand exposed and naked before the judgment seat. These scoffers have encouraged vile behavior. They sought to diminish the justice of God in the eyes of their followers and they will reap what they sow. What is done in secret will be revealed. So this again is is a warning not as much to the false teachers in the church, but to the saints in the church. Do not be caught up with these people and their teachings. 
They may go for a time when not reaping the consequences of their actions, but they will receive payment in full, and it will be in plain view. So in conclusion this morning, I just want to encourage you that, that as sure as the ground will not fall out from beneath our feet, God will fulfill his promises. In fact, more so. I'd I, I, I bet on the ground falling out beneath my feet before I bet on God not fulfilling his promises. God's promises will not fail. Jesus will return in glory and in judgment. Do not be shaken in doubt, but have confidence. Amen.